Thank you. I, I just have two things to say about the commentary. Um, the first is um, they make great Christmas gifts. And the second is buy in bulk. We have two kids in college. <laughs> well, I was going to begin by thanking you all for your warm welcome. But I think instead I'll just say uh, I'm really honored to be invited back to <laughs> preach here. Um, when I'm asked to preach in my own or other churches, it's almost always in Episcopal churches. We use the revised common lectionary. Using a prescribed set of readings, often tied to particular seasons of the church's year, is a very particular sort of discipline and a very different way of working through a text than going through Romans successively the way you all are doing. When you preach from a lectionary, each sermon starts afresh. That can be a real advantage in some cases. Other times, it can feel like reinventing the wheel. Alternatively, when you work through a whole text, you can carry a sort of momentum with you from Sunday after Sunday as you walk through the text. And each of these patterns of preaching is well established in church history. Each offers different but distinct advantages to a preacher. Nevertheless, to come as a visiting preacher to a congregation working its way through a single text is to get the worst of both worlds. <laughs> I can't rely on any sort of momentum developed over weeks of walking together through Romans with you, and I don't have the luxury of starting afresh with a different set of texts. Yes, if I could. So, of course, I only realized this situation long after I agreed to come. And it seems to me the only path forward is to begin by going backward and try and generate my own momentum as we approach Romans 6, the passage Jason read for us. And that's okay because Jason told me I have four hours to preach today if I want it. <laughs> I won't take four hours. But I do want to set or perhaps reset the stage for Paul's challenging and liberating comments in Romans 6. Now, since I've not been with you over these previous weeks, I'm blissfully ignorant of what Jason has been saying about Romans. And if I move in a slightly different direction from him, you can rest assured that Romans and Scripture in general is capable of sustaining a variety of interpretations, each of which can build up the body of Christ without excluding the other. Now, like most scholars of Paul, I think that chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, lays out the basic theme of the whole letter. The gospel reveals the righteousness of God. I should tell you, however, that as a rule, Paul scholars are a disagreeable lot. So even though we almost all agree that the central theme of Romans is that the gospel reveals the righteousness of God, we disagree often sharply, never violently, 
about the meaning of the phrase, the righteousness of God. Many take that phrase to be a reference to the righteousness that God imparts to us, right? That is the righteousness that comes from God and is offered to believers in the light of their faith in Christ. It reflects God's way of making the world right. And I'm not opposed to any of those things. But I think that interpretation is only secondarily in Paul's mind. Instead, I think Paul's primary concern is to assert that the gospel confirms that God is righteous, that God is just. Now, that might lead you to wonder why Paul would make such an anodyne and obvious claim the central theme of his longest letter. To answer that, though, we need to remember a few basic points about our faith and things that are easy to forget in today's world. I can summarize the first point by reminding you that Christ was not Mary and Joseph's last name. (laughs) Christ is simply the English version of the Greek word Christos, which is a translation of the Hebrew Mashiach or Messiah. And Messiah is a term that only has meaning in relation to the people of Israel. To call Jesus the Christ, as Paul does multiple times in Romans and throughout all of his letters, is to locate Jesus in that long, ongoing story of God's redemption of the world through the fate of the chosen people. Jesus is inextricably bound up in God's dealings with Israel. He comes as a Jew to reform and redeem the Jews And his first followers were all Jews. They saw their beliefs about the crucified and resurrected Messiah as completely in line with their Judaism. As far as we can tell, they continued to worship in synagogues and in the temple in Jerusalem. And although in his earthly ministry, he focuses on the lost sheep of the house of Israel, the resurrected Christ sends his followers to all the nations, to the Gentiles, to people like us. And that, of course, goes all the way back to God's initial promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, 3, that in you all the nations will be blessed. Slowly, reluctantly, the disciples begin to reach beyond the borders of Judaism. And, of course, that's all related to us in the book of Acts. To the surprise of everyone, Gentiles respond to the gospel in much greater numbers than Jews do. And they receive the Holy Spirit just as the first followers of Jesus did at Pentecost. God has clearly accepted them. That's all wonderful. Good news for us, unless you're a Jew already. But it also raises some pretty sharp questions. If these Gentiles are joining the original Jewish followers of Jesus, the Messiah of Israel, shouldn't they become Jews as well? Shouldn't the males be circumcised? Shouldn't they all keep the law? I won't go over all the Old Testament texts with you, but you're going to have to take my word for it, that the overwhelming portion of Old Testament texts would lead you to think that when Israel is redeemed and the Gentiles are drawn into redeemed Israel, They would become Jews, too. The really surprising thing 
is that this group of Jewish followers of Jesus decides, at Peter's and Paul's promptings mostly, that the Gentiles who turn to Christ don't need to become Jews as well. Since they've received the Holy Spirit, it's clear God has accepted them. And if God has accepted them, then there's nothing more humans should require other than that they make a clean break with their pagan past. No doubt that was the right decision. And just as that answers some questions, it raises others. And these are the questions that hover over Romans and which Paul addresses in his letter. The first question concerns whether God has one plan of salvation for Jews and obedience to law, I suppose you'd call that, and another plan for Gentiles, faith in Christ. Or maybe, maybe God has abandoned the covenant with the Jews in favor of a new covenant with Christians based on faith in Christ. Those questions raise the issue of God's justice or God's righteousness. And Paul is quick to see and to understand that a God who makes an everlasting covenant with the Jews only to abandon that covenant in favor of another covenant with Christians is not a God you can trust, not a righteous God. Such a capricious God would be worthy of your fear, but not worthy of your love. So Paul, the former Pharisee, an apostle who both devoted his life to preaching to Gentiles and who never stopped thinking of himself as a Jew, wants to explain to the Romans that the gospel reveals the righteousness and not the capriciousness of God. This is so that the church of Gentiles and some Jews may rightly love God and each other as a single, unified body of Christ. Well, with that agenda in mind, Paul begins by demonstrating that although the gospel is good news to Jews first and then to Gentiles, both Jews and Gentiles, in their own distinct ways, are fundamentally alienated from God. This alienation has its source in sin's oppressive presence in the world. And this alienation is overcome through the life and resurrection of Christ. Christ's faithfulness destroys sin's power and opens a new life of friendship with God to those who believe. And that all sounds good, and it is good. It's good news. But it makes it seem like the gospel is a pretty sharp deviation from God's prior dealings with Israel. It seems like Paul really is abandoning the law. And Paul of one of course, wants to say, not so. That phrase he uses so powerfully in Romans, meganoito, not so. This is exactly the way God has always worked to bring salvation, and the law itself confirms this. That's what he wants to say. And that's why Paul turns to Abraham in chapter 4 of Romans. Abraham is made righteous or rendered righteous before God because of his faith. Circumcision doesn't make him righteous. It merely confirms his righteousness. In fact, if that were not the case, if there were something about Abraham's character that made him righteous, if there was something about the act of circumcision that made him righteous, 
then Abraham couldn't bring a blessing to both Jews and Gentiles. And of course, that was God's original promise back in Genesis. The God who rendered Abraham righteous because of his faith renders us who have the same type of faith in the God who raised Jesus from the dead righteous too. It makes us righteous too. This is because God has always only rendered people righteous because of their faith. They're not two different plans of salvation. God hasn't changed course. Instead, the gospel reveals that God is righteous and that God's righteousness ensures our righteousness. This has a wide range of implications for us who believe, and many of these become evident in the course of Romans. Most importantly, though, for our purposes, God's righteous plan of salvation opens the way for us to become reconciled to God through Christ. As Paul notes in chapter 5, you'll note I'm getting closer to chapter 6, all of creation has become captivated by sin through Adam's transgression. In Christ, though, we're no longer enemies, no longer alienated from God and each other. And if we're to grasp the truly liberating claims and the radical claims of Romans 6, we need to do our best to understand Paul's discussion at the end of chapter 5. Paul's language here is very political. One of its central terms is dominion, which is not a word that you hear very often in political debates on the radio, but it's a political term. It's about who's in control, who gets to exercise power. And in 5.17, Paul says that death exercises dominion in the world. And then in 5.20, he more precisely states that sin exercises dominion through death. And these two images help set things up for chapter 6, and I'd like to unpack them just a little bit. First, it's important to understand that for the most part in Romans, when Paul speaks of sin, he's not primarily speaking about an individual's failings. He uses the word transgression for those sinful acts. Instead, for Paul, sin is spoken of as a power as a distinct, malevolent force that seeks to rule the cosmos. When Adam sins, when Adam transgresses, this malevolent force finds its way into God's good creation, wreaking all sorts of havoc, including the introduction of death. God's creation is held captive by sin, a force that seeks to enslave and oppress us and to keep us alienated from God and from each other. As Paul will go on to explain later in Romans, because of sin's dominion, because sin exercises control over the world, it's able to hijack all of God's good gifts to us, including the law, and taking what God gave for our benefit and using it instead for our oppression and destruction. In the death and resurrection of Christ, God breaks sin's hold by defeating death, sin's strongest and most fearsome weapon. Paul makes it clear at the end of chapter 5 that Christ's dominion, working through grace, 
is an alternative kingdom to the dominion of sin. Indeed, Paul goes so far as to say that when sin and its dominion increased, grace abounded all the more. And that leads Paul to ask a rhetorical question at the beginning of chapter 6, the first verse. Should we continue in sin? Should we remain in sin so that grace may abound? And of course, the answer is no. And the bulk of our passage for this morning explains why that is so. Paul's first move is to note that if you have died to sin, it is impossible to keep on living in sin. Now, that may sound very confusing, but if you and it particularly sound confusing if you think of sin simply as a set of actions. If you continue to think of sin simply as a set of actions, then it probably seems to you that Paul expects moral perfection from Christians. If dying to sin is a way of speaking about stopping a set of activities, then any failure to stop sinning means that you have not really died to sin. Now, I'm as much in favor of moral perfection as the next person. And Paul, of course, thinks moral perfection should be encouraged, but that's not what the Christian life is all about. And that's not what Paul is talking about here. Paul understands that Christians will fail, transgress, fall out with each other, and make foolish and destructive choices. The apostle who had such intense engagements with the church in Corinth and its many and various sins understands moral failing in the church. He doesn't improve, but he recognizes that until Christ returns, until we know just as fully as we are known, as he tells the Corinthians, our lives will be marked by transgressions. Now, of course, Christians have ways of dealing with that. Reconciliation, forgiveness, repentance. But that's not what Paul is talking about here. He's speaking of sin as a ruler exercising dominion over God's creation. The death and resurrection of Christ has set up an alternative space, an alternative government, a new country. And dying to sin is a way of speaking about a transfer of citizenship. Think of it that way. It's like transferring your citizenship from one country to another. And in a world marked by these two dominions, Paul's initial move in the first two verses of chapter 6 is to note that you can't have dual citizenship in sin's country and Christ's. The passports don't work that way. Baptism is, among other things, that act that signifies our transfer of citizenship from sin's world to Christ's, from being in sin to being in Christ. And that's what Paul moves on to remind the Romans about. When you were baptized, you moved out of sin's world into Christ's world. In baptism, you reenact and participate in Christ's own death and resurrection. We die to our previous desires, our previous allegiances, our previous commitments in order to rise again into a new world, into a new country, a world founded on and marked by Christ's own dying and rising. 
And that's the thrust of the first five verses of chapter 6. By taking on and by defeating death, Christ overcomes sin's most potent and fearsome weapon. And it's a sure sign that Christ's ultimately, sorry, it's a sure sign that Christ will ultimately be victorious over sin. Participating in Christ's death frees us from sin's oppressive rule to become servants of Christ and citizens of his kingdom. Now, it should be as clear to us as it was to Paul that sin's dominion continues down to this present time. These two kingdoms, sin's and Christ's, move side by side through history. But what is also clear is that Christ has already taken on everything that sin could throw at him, including death, and defeated it. Although these two kingdoms move through history together, there is no doubt whose kingdom will ultimately be victorious. And if we have died to our past allegiances, we can have no further commitments to living in sin's kingdom. As Paul says in verse 11, we must consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. Paul wraps up this passage in verses 12 to 14 by emphasizing that dying to sin is not simply about some sort of internal mental transaction. The Christian life is about bodies, too. From the very bodily act of baptism through to the resurrection of our bodies at the end of time, Christianity has always been very aware that life with the one true God is never simply a set of internal conversations and feelings. God redeems us through the act of taking on a body in Jesus Christ, becoming fully human, engaging fully in human life, and then offering that life in all of its bodily fullness back to God as an offering. Given that, it's not surprising then that Paul reminds the Romans that their bodies are now no longer under sin's control. They are no longer sin's slaves. Instead, he and they and we are slaves of God. At this highly politicized time of year, this last point should remind us that Christians have a very different understanding of freedom from that of any of the major political parties and different from Chuck Norris as well. Paul and the Christian tradition that follows in his wake would have had a very hard time of understanding our notion of freedom as not being constrained by outside forces such as governments or bureaucracies or corporations. As Paul sees it, human life is always lived under some power. The idea that one would ever be radically unconstrained, unencumbered, unconnected, would have been inconceivable to Paul. And if he could have conceived of it, he wouldn't have liked the idea anyway. For Paul, the question he presses on the Romans and on us 
is whether we will be slaves of an oppressive, death-dealing master or slaves of Christ, a master whose love for us is unbreakable and in whose service we will find perfect freedom. Not the freedom of one who is ever more unconstrained or unencumbered or disconnected, but this is the freedom that comes from being in right relationship with God and with others and with the world. This is the freedom that enables us to become ever more who we are truly meant to be, ever more conformed to the image of Christ. That's what Paul understands by freedom. Now, you might think that Paul's emphasis on making a clean break with the dominion of sin and living fully in the dominion of Christ is also a call to withdraw from the wider Christian, sorry, withdrawal from the wider non-Christian world. Well, if you think that, Paul just has two words for you. Meganoito, not so. First, such a withdrawal is impossible, and it would have been impossible for the Romans too. But more importantly, secondly, the world is God's good creation. The fact that sin has captivated this world and hijacked God's good gifts, using them to impress and enslave us, is not a reason to withdraw from what ultimately belongs to God. Prophets like Isaiah foresaw that when the people of God are redeemed, the rest of the world will see the fascinating compelling beauty of their lives and be drawn to God. That's the part of that that great vision right at the beginning of Isaiah in chapter 2 where he talks about all the nations coming up to Jerusalem and, and people learning the word of the Lord and beating their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. What they see there in the redemption of the people of God is so compelling, so fascinating, so beautiful that they won't be kept away. As Paul understands it, the primary mission of the church is to reflect in word and in deed the beauty of God's redemption, to manifest a common life, a life together that is so compelling that the world will see it and be drawn to God. And none of that can happen if you withdraw. This is what Paul anticipates when he urges the Romans in 6.13 to present themselves to God as those who have been transferred from the realm of death into the realm of life. Of course, he reiterates this idea at the beginning of chapter 12 in that very famous passage when he tells them to present their bodies as a living sacrifice to God. Such self-offering loses its purpose and its point if Christians withdraw from or disdain or even hate the world. So let me just recap here. As chapter 6 begins, Paul reminds the Romans that they have died to sin, that their baptism transfers them from sin's dominion which is oppressive and death-dealing, into Christ's dominion of life and liberty, but a liberty that is devoted to service. 
And that if that has happened, what the Romans need to do is live into that. To live the truth that has actually happened to them. Which includes presenting themselves fully. Souls, bodies, hearts, minds, imaginations, allegiances, convictions, all of them in their totality to God. So that, there can be, so that they can bear witness in word and in deed to what God is doing in the world in Christ. Now, I began by reflecting a bit on my usual practice of preaching from a set of lectionary readings. And I want to conclude by returning there. In many churches today, that is this Sunday, they have heat. Sorry, that's not what I meant to say. Uh, uh, In many churches today, they'll be celebrating the Feast of All Saints. Technically, this was Thursday, right? All Saints Day was Thursday. But if you didn't have a service on Thursday, you would observe this feast on the following Sunday. And that's what they're doing in my church right about now. Along with the Easter Vigil, Pentecost, and the Feast of Jesus' Baptism, All Saints is one of the four traditional dates of baptism, which is, of course, where Paul begins our passage today. Baptism is that act by which we transfer our citizenship from sin's dominion into Christ's. And by baptizing people on All Saints Day, we not only mark that transfer of citizenship, but we recall together those citizens of Christ's kingdom who have masterfully and faithfully made their way through the world before us, who have displayed holiness in all sorts of contexts and conditions. Their lives provide us with concrete, practical examples of what it looks like to offer oneself to God as a living sacrifice and to manifest the perfect freedom of Christ's kingdom. And we, who today desire to live fully in the dominion of Christ, can only benefit by attending to their lives, not just today on All Saints Day, but of course throughout the year. Will you join me in a prayer, please? Loving God, you have called us to be your own. You have made us for yourself. And our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Help us to remember that rest that you have prepared for us, that we have entered or are starting to enter in our baptism. And help us to live fully as citizens of the kingdom of Christ reconciled to you, reconciled to each other, rejoicing in the communion of saints who have gone before us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Please stand with us as we conclude our service.